Hey there, and welcome to Living Through It, a podcast for interesting times. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a recovering lawyer, world-renowned leadership expert, and lifelong progressive activist and organizer. Reminder that if you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, you can head on over to patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. You can get access to our entire back catalog ad-free there, and also we have some special bonuses for our most favored listeners. Thanks so much for being here. And now here's this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode, where we're welcoming Brandon Wolf, Pulse nightclub shooting survivor, press secretary for Equality Florida, and founder of the Drew Project, which creates safe space for LGBTQ plus kids. This is an incredibly powerful and moving episode. And It's also a very strong warning about what the country could be facing down in the event that Ron DeSantis is successful in his bid for presidency. I urge you to listen to this with a word of caution and to consider what it's going to mean for us in the coming months and years, because we know DeSantis is going to make a run at it. And Brandon, along with plenty of other activists in Florida, is on the front lines of experiencing what that could look like on a nationwide basis. Here's this week's episode. Okay, and welcome back. And I am thrilled to welcome to the Living Through It podcast, Brandon Wolf, who many of you are familiar with from a multitude of media appearances and also from all of his incredible work on behalf of gun violence survivors and LGBTQ folks and particularly kids. So welcome, Brandon. We're thrilled to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Really looking forward to it. Um, So, you know, we're taping this on the day of the Georgia runoff. And um, I'm curious, you know, we had some wins in the midterms, um, definitely some things that, you know, could have gone a little bit better, but I'm curious to hear first and foremost, how you're feeling as we come out of this current election cycle. Well, yeah, it feels like a double-edged sword, right? Cause it's like, how do I feel as a Floridian? And also how do I feel as an American? Um, you know, Florida's, Florida's in trouble. I'll start with sort of the, the negative perspective first. Florida is in trouble. Um, There are a lot of things that happened this last election cycle, I think, that made things very challenging for us in the state. Um, Those things are going to continue to be hurdles until we address them. Uh, You know, first and foremost, whether or not people in the national infrastructure are willing to invest in Florida is a real issue. Um, Ron DeSantis raised over $200 million for his re-election campaign, the most any gubernatorial candidate has raised in American history. That scared a lot of national funders off. And so I think, you know, that sort of driving up of the DeSantis machine at the same time that others pull out of the state probably widened uh, his win and and also helped him to drag others across the finish line. Um, You know, I, I think that's coupled with, you know, his brand of right wing extremism that has made things particularly precarious for LGBTQ people, for people of color, um, you know, for for folks who want to get pregnant or have children, like all of those people have been in the crosshairs of DeSantis here in the state of Florida. And so I think Floridians coming out of the midterms are feeling the weight of that. Uh, Floridians are feeling... Uh, in in some ways abandoned by the national infrastructure. Floridians are feeling, um, you know, uh, 
they're feeling the sense of now what, what, what happens next. But I think nationally, what you saw is a sort of repudiation of that, you know, DeSantis brand of extremism, that sort of anti-LGBTQ hysteria, the, you know, I'm fighting against the woke. It just didn't play with people because that's not what people are thinking about every day. If you look at the exit polling, the top five issues that drove people to the polls, guess what? Someone in a wig dancing to Lady Gaga was not on the top five because that's just nope. not what that's not what's impacting people's lives. So, um, you know, I think in general, as a country, we should feel pretty good about, you know, how we were able to perform in the midterms. We should feel really good about some of the Democratic candidates that stood up. We love Big Gretch. Uh, you know, Gavin Newsom was really strong in California. So I think we should feel good about uh, how we performed nationally. And we should also understand that Florida remains a warning sign to the rest of the country about what right-wing extremism can accomplish if it's well-funded, if it drives its competition out of the playing field, if they find one authoritarian leader to rally around. Florida is what's possible if we don't combat right-wing extremism, if we don't take it head on. Yeah, the timing of this is fantastic, and I'm really glad you led with Florida because next week our guest is Toby Gialuca from Voters for Progress in Florida, and the theme of our episode next week is Can Florida Be Saved? And one of the things that we're talking about there is the the way in which um, there's been this flipping out on the far right of DeSantis and Donald Trump so that, you know, Trump is now being rejected by the far right and DeSantis is the rising star. And I think the thing that is so important about hearing from voices in Florida right now, including yours, including Toby's, including other people who are really mobilizing where you live, is that we're all going to be in the DeSantis crosshairs come 2024, because there's no doubt he's running for president and his own perhaps more palatable, more controlled version of fascism, I think we're going to see very much on the rise. And so I really appreciate you starting from that place, because I don't think anybody should underestimate the danger of what DeSantis is trying to sell right now. Um, And obviously, some of the things he's undertaken in Florida, he's doing as a test for the rest of the country. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, DeSantis is... um is nothing if not self-motivated. He, you know, he he's obsessed with the idea of being president. He's obsessed with, you know, with seeing his star rise, with being on Tucker Carlson more often, with seeing his name trend on social media. In that way, he's not dissimilar from Donald Trump. The, the thing that makes them different is that DeSantis understands how the functions of government work. He, you know, he's a graduate of both Harvard and Yale. Uh, he served in Congress. He's now been a governor of the third largest state in the union. He's very savvy at understanding how to warp the systems of government to give him what he's looking for, whether that is, you know, bending the board of medicine to do something it's never done before, which is take take on a standard of care that would eliminate care for trans young people, whether that's using the Department of Business and Professional Regulation, which is there to, you know, stop 12-year-olds from buying booze at the local corner store and use that, weaponize that department against drag shows in Miami Beach, right? These are ways in which DeSantis moves that Trump is, is quite frankly, not savvy or intelligent enough to use. Um, But you can guarantee, as you said, that DeSantis would do that and more if he were elected president in 2024. You can, you know, just ask yourself the question, if, if DeSantis is willing to call the legislature into a special session to dissolve a local government to punish Walt Disney Corporation for having a dissenting opinion about a piece of policy 
what else would he be willing to do with the powers and levers of the federal government? If he's willing to remove and replace locally elected officials, whether they're state attorneys or county commissioners or school board members, because they dare to defy him or have a different opinion than him, what is to say he wouldn't try to do the same thing as president of the United States? The man is not a friend to Florida or democracy. He's certainly not a friend to the country. And his brand of right-wing extremism, of authoritarianism, is, as you said, sort of a testing ground, uh, a test market for what he will try to run on in 2024 uh, during the presidential election cycle. Right. And we're seeing we're seeing the nationwide GOP take some of that and run with it. Right. Like we know we've seen bills introduced in the House that we know are not going to pass that are things like a nationwide abortion ban there that are things like attempting to end the access of trans kids to sports and things like that. And so. Yeah, I think this is something we've all definitely got to keep an eye on. So speaking of that issue, I think you know that I have a non-binary child. I am personally deeply invested where I live here in California in making sure that there is equal access and equity and in ending some of these sort of like binary gendered local programs that we have here and the like that are honestly in violation of California law, even as they're being run by local PTAs. You've started an organization called the Drew Project, which is designed to create safe spaces for LGBTQ youth. And I'm curious how that's going. I mean, this, you know, this environment, um, I will just say for me, you know, as the parent of an LGBTQ plus kid, the this environment is terrifying, even yeah. here in California, where I feel like we are relatively safe. Um, you know, I've watched as Families with trans kids have fled Texas. I talked to Joaquin Castro about this last week or a couple of weeks ago on the podcast uh, as well. And he gave a full-throated, you know, sort of like rage-induced defense of trans and non-binary kids and their families and what we're being subjected to right now. So I want to hear a little bit more about your work in that regard, because I will just say um, that that my kid in particular sees you very much as a role model and is always looking right now for, you know, Gen Z and millennial and even, uh, to be honest, elders as well in the LGBTQ plus community who are really out there fighting for for these kids. Yeah, thank you so much for saying that. Um because it is it's it's hard sometimes you get lost in the minutia and you get lost in the day-to-day grind there are days where you know i'm sitting there and i'm i'm listening to a board of medicine hearing in florida and i just wonder if it's worth continuing to fight or just you know, packing up and moving to san diego so it it feels good to to hear from you that you know other people are seeing the work that especially young people are being inspired by others fighting around them so the drew project is um is a is a passion project that I really launched in July of 2016 with some friends. Um, we lost our best friend Drew Leinenen in the shooting at Pulse nightclub, and um, it 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 rocked our world. And I say that because you know everybody has people that are very close to them, people they love very much. Um, Drew was the social anchor in our community. Drew was the the person who brought people together. I'm, I'm thinking about you know his his funeral, and we had 
we had debated about what venue to hold his funeral in. Uh, and we ultimately decided on this cathedral in downtown because we said, you know, if 100 or 200 people show up, we want there to be enough seats for people to feel comfortable. And so we picked this venue that, you know, could hold probably five or 600 people. And when we got to the church that day, there were over a thousand people there. They were spilling out into the streets. And that's because of the impact he had. I recognized all of those faces, not because I knew them personally, but because I knew that Drew had touched them. I knew that, you know, he had done something to make them feel safe and comfortable in their own skin. And so a few weeks later, we, we got, you know, we got into Drew's apartment and gathered around his kitchen island. And we were talking about what a legacy for him would look like. We were asking ourselves, you know, what do we, what do we want people to remember about our best friend? And the answer was really quite simple. When he was in high school, he was most proud of the fact that he had launched the school's first gay straight Alliance student club. Now keep in mind, this is like 2003, 2004 in rural Florida. So it's not exactly the safest time to be creating a space for young people to be queer. Um, but he was really passionate about it. He he knew he wanted a space to be himself and he wanted to inspire and motivate others to do the same. So our work to establish the Drew Project was simply to do what he would be doing uh, if he was still here. And so over the last six and a half years, um, I'm really proud of the work we've been able to do. We've uh, helped to establish and support Gay Straight Alliance student clubs, not just around the country, but around the globe. Um, we authored the country's most comprehensive guidebook to help those student clubs be productive in their time together, to learn things about allyship and pride. Um, that guidebook has now been downloaded, I think, in 47 U.S. states and 13 other countries. Uh, it's free for download at thedrewproject.org, so I encourage people to check it out. We also started a mini-grant program that's given over $5,000 away to those student groups so they can get supplies or go on field trips or do whatever they have to do. And then my favorite part that gives me the most joy um, is our scholarship program, our access to higher education. In six and a half years, we've given over $100,000 away to people who are already changing the world and just have dreams of going off and achieving their higher education goals. Um, and what I love about it is we call those scholarships the Spirit of Drew Awards. And that's because mm. those young people truly embody the best parts of Drew every single day. And, and I'm just so grateful and honored that we get to help them access higher education and go on and, and change the world. It, it's so good to hear you talk about this. I mean, the courage of kids to do this kind of thing. Uh, and it sounds like Drew, um, and I'm so sorry for the loss. Drew, it sounds like Drew was a, an incredibly brave person yeah. throughout his life. I will just say that you know, my own kid who's 10 and a half, who's currently engaged today and yesterday while we're taping in a protest at their school against kids who have been purposefully bringing Chick-fil-A onto campus to basically intimidate my kid, knowing that my kid refuses to eat there because Chick-fil-A has historically given a lot of money to anti-LGBTQ plus um, organizations and organizations that are against rights and equality. Um, you know, hearing that, I look at my kid and I think the bravery that it takes to be that person blows my mind daily. And, you know, I know a lot of brave people. There are, there are very few, you can't be around an out LGBTQ plus kid who is doing this, who is standing up for who they are and what they believe in, let alone at a very young age. You know, my kid came out of fourth grade without being just stunned by what it takes to do that, let alone 
in the era that you're describing, right? Where in rural Florida, when Drew did what he did. So, yeah. I, I mean, this legacy is incredible and I'm, I'm really grateful for it just from where I sit. And thank you. I really encourage all of our listeners to go, to go check out what the Drew Project does. Um, I, I'll add that, you know, you've, you've also moved into now work with Equality Florida, which is a civil rights organization in Florida. You're now the press secretary. And I'm interested to hear a little bit about how that work is going, particularly in this environment as well. Yeah, oh, it is a it's a tough time to be doing LGBTQ civil rights work in Florida. Um, but it's an important time to be doing it. And I feel very grateful that I get to, you know, as someone put it this weekend, be professionally gay. That is my job is to be <laughs> gay yes. as a profession. And I love that. I, I couldn't be more honored yeah. and proud to be that. Um, you know, Equality Florida started 25 years ago um, in the, I think the Jeb Bush administration, if that tells you sort of wow. the climate that things were in at the time. <laughs> uh, and our work has always been grounded in this idea that Florida and as a result, the nation can be a place where everyone is treated with dignity and respect, can be a place where everyone is valued and respected, um, where, where, you know, everyone is free to live without fear of discrimination or violence. That's always been the core tenet of our organization. And it has come in a lot of different forms. You know, until 2021, we were actually successful in blocking every piece of explicitly anti-LGBTQ legislation that came through Tallahassee. Wow. Um, you know, we also do work on a local level. We were instrumental in, uh, you know, overturning the ban on marriage equality here in Florida before it actually happened on a federal level. So there's a whole bunch of work that Equality Florida has been in engaged in. Um, but as I mentioned, that work is really challenging right now. So, you know, I would say the, the, the biggest thing that I get, get to do every single day is help Floridians, uh, LGBTQ Floridians specifically stay centered in all of our conversations because the right-wing strategy in this country, DeSantis's strategy is baked in a few different things. The first one is confirmation bias. The strategy is baked in the hope that you don't know what it's like to be someone else in the world so I can invent who they are and scare you with that invented boogeyman, that monster in the closet. You know, the right-wing strategy and DeSantis's strategy, they are baked in a few different key components. The first one is that confirmation bias, right? That assumption that you don't know what it's like to be someone else so I can just invent who they are. I can make up things that scare you about them, turn them into a boogeyman, an ideology, a shadowy ism. He's done that, especially with trans and non-binary people, creating this idea of who trans and non-binary people are that's simply not true, but then trafficking in these like 1960s and 70s style bigoted tropes to try to scare people into signing away all of their civil liberties so that Ron DeSantis can fight the shadowy trans ideology, right? So that's number one. And the second key component is that uh, they want to feel inevitable that they convince you that fighting back isn't worth it because they'll always win, that they convince you that fighting back is hopeless. Um, but our challenge is to fight back anyway as we always have, right? The LGBTQ community, the, the movement for LGBTQ progress and equality has always been about finding a way to push forward and fight back while our backs are against the wall. It happened at Stonewall. People didn't pick bricks up out of the street and throw them at police officers thinking that the next day we would secure non-discrimination protections. They did that because their backs were against the wall and they'd had enough. 
And they wanted to live in a world that was better than the one they came into. You think about the fight, you know, against HIV and AIDS, same thing. People put their bodies on the line demanding to be seen and valued, not because they thought we would cure AIDS the next day or the next week, but because they knew that their lives, that, that their friends' lives, that those things were worth fighting for. Same is true with marriage equality. People were willing to stand on courthouse steps hand in hand, even though people were hurling slurs at them and making up things about uh, them and their marriages and their lives to scare others. And they said proudly, unashamedly, confidently, my love is love. So I say all of that because I do think that Equality Florida feels a deep sense of obligation in this moment with Ron DeSantis cooking up stories about trans people, with Ron DeSantis trying to make himself feel inevitable with electoral wins and fundraising, we have a deep sense of obligation to fight back, to give LGBTQ Floridians a voice, to ensure that anytime our issues are being talked about, that our voices are squarely at the conversation, so are squarely at that table. And my job as press secretary is to help tell those stories. It's to you know help tell the story of the 12-year-old trans kid who's worried that they won't be able to access healthcare anymore. My my job is to help the, you know, the couple who fought for so long to see their marriage recognized, who fought for so long to be able to adopt a child, now to help them fight for a classroom that sees them and respects them alongside every other family. I think we have to do that. And and you started by, you know, talking about Florida and and whether or not Florida is worth fighting for. I think Florida is worth fighting for because I believe that the people of Florida are worth fighting for. Um, and so Equality Florida, I think, embodies that obligation, that sense of fight, even with our backs against the wall, even in a very difficult climate, we continue to fight back. Yeah, you're you're from a different generation than I am, but I will just tell you that I always credit ACT UP with making me an activist. Yeah. I, I grew up in New York, Pennsylvania, which I don't know if you know, but is a small town that was a home to a lot of people in the theater community on Broadway. It's about 60 miles outside of New York. And I was a, a teenager when AIDS decimated the town that I grew up in. Um, you know, some of the earliest people that we lost were the doctor who delivered my sister and the chef who I worked with on my first line job in a restaurant. Um, and I have to say that I feel like that legacy is so strong and what people fail to remember, I think, to some extent, it's almost like we've 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 blocked it out, is that that moment um, for me when I was in the streets with people was one where literally people were dying every day. And you had the sense that if you were not uh, out there, it more lives were going to be lost and nobody was paying attention. And, you know, the Reagan administration was like literally allowing people to die. And I, I sort of feel like the, the moment that we're in right now, we need to remember that that battle is indeed still ongoing, right? right? You know, we're only now seeing, you know, there just a couple of days ago, there was a study that was released that there was a vaccine that finally seemed to be showing some progress. And while so much progress has been made, I, I think it is important for us to remember that um, that this path that we're on for change began long before we arrived and will continue long after we're gone. And That's right. I think your point of everyone being worth fighting for in this moment, most particularly people who are marginalized and targeted, is one that um, that that we all need to kind of take up. And I know our audience will hear and it will continue to motivate them. So, so thank you for that. Yeah, I, I hope so. You know, my boss said something the other day that has really resonated with me. She said, 
in any battle, the front line has to be somewhere. It just happens to be here this time. And for me, that helps me when I get up. And again, I, I feel this sense of overwhelm. I feel this sense of inevitability from DeSantis and the right wing. I remind myself that every battle has a front line. I'm just on it this time. And that means I have an obligation to get up and fight because the people who are behind us, the people who, you know, who are counting on us, they're worth fighting for. Um, so don't give up on Florida, please. There are great people here. It's a state of 23, 24 million people. Uh, and a lot of us are, are, are really great and worth fighting for. 100%. Um, okay, I wanted to talk just a couple of minutes about um, your work as well in the arena of, of gun violence. Um, we've already touched a little bit on the loss of Drew and Pulse. Um, recently, we did have the shooting at Club Q in Colorado. Um, and I saw some of your statements on Joy Reid and elsewhere that, you know, are so powerful and so compelling. Um, and, and, you know, I, I wonder how you feel about, about that issue as well. And I know that's not where necessarily all of your focus is these days, but of course, all these issues intersect, right? And it's one of the things that's kind of scary about the moment that we're in is that when you've got, um, the weaponization of othering and hate, and you've got a well-armed far right wing, those two things come together. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm curious how you're feeling about the progress right now that we've seen or not seen, um, you know, and, and where you're looking to next legislatively on that front. Sure. Um, you know, one of the things that we did talk about with Joaquin Castro on the podcast a couple of weeks ago was how we keep pushing forward, given the slim majority we're going to see in the House, for instance, right. in this next term, to try to continue pushing the agenda on this issue and other issues that really matter to progressives and Democrats. Yeah, thank you. You know, to to put it plainly, um hate is dangerous, but militarized hate is fatal. And and I think that's that's the reality that we live in in this country that in America it feels like we've made our choice that instead of using every tool and resource that we have to push back against hate, we've decided to embolden it to subsidize it and to hand it an assault weapon one aisle over from the apples and oranges. And so, you know, the, the question about like the intersections of, of this work, um, is it is an apt one because you know the LGBTQ community does experience gun violence disproportionately. We did a, a report with Every Town and the Human Rights Campaign in 2021 at the five-year mark of the Pulse shooting to talk about the intersections of this issue. It's called the Remembering Pulse Report. I encourage everyone again; it's free for them to check out and download. Um, and you'll be shocked to learn how much more often LGBTQ young people are threatened with a firearm at school than other people. You'll be shocked to learn how much more often LGBTQ people, for instance, are threatened with a firearm during a domestic violence dispute than their non-LGBTQ peers, right? So everywhere we talk about gun violence, we're also talking about LGBTQ issues, and that's why it's become so central to my work. Um, I also want to ground people in the understanding that we have made progress. I know that it doesn't always feel that way, and I get it, we're all looking for the same headline. We all want the front page of the New York Times to say sweeping gun safety legislation passed, assault weapons banned in America once again. I want that too. I want that as bad as anyone else. Um, but it doesn't take away from the progress we've been able to make along the way. Think about how far we've come since Pulse happened. And I'm just only gonna go back that far, but you could go back even further. When Pulse happened, 
there was a move to change gun safety laws on a federal level. Then Congressman John Lewis uh, led a sit-in of the House to try to get no fly, no buy over the finish line. Uh, We talked about reinstating an assault weapons ban. There were a whole bunch of things we talked about. But at the same time, the national conversation was rooted in the idea that you can't run on gun safety and win. So we had a presidential candidate in Hillary Clinton who was talking about gun safety, but was sort of tiptoeing around the edges. And as a as a part, as a Democratic Party, we weren't quite sure we were going to say out loud, yeah, we want to ban assault weapons and high capacity magazines. There was this sense that if you say the word guns out loud, you will lose. And so we can't say anything at all. And then flash forward to 2018. Shooting at Parkland happens. You see millions of people mobilize in Washington, D.C. for March for Our Lives. The largest protests uh, since the 2000 election happened in the Florida State Capitol. Florida passed its first gun safety legislation in 25 years with a Republican legislature and a Republican sitting in the governor's mansion. And by the way, that same year, 2018, the midterm elections were marked by pro-gun safety candidates winning over their gun-obsessed opponents, right? Moms uh, Demand Action spent more than the NRA in the 2018 midterms for the first time, I think, in history. And as a result, over 40 NRA-backed candidates lost their bid for the U.S. House. That's progress. And then you flash forward even further to 2020. Joe Biden's running for president. And guess what? He's running on the most progressive gun safety platform we've seen in decades. Why? Because of the progress we've been able to make on the ground. Because as a nation, we've been able to shift public perception to understand that addressing gun violence is about public health. It's about public safety. It's about whether or not our children have the future they deserve. So we have made real progress, both tangibly in the way we've been able to elect candidates uh, and also, you know, emotionally and mentally in the public perception, changing the way we talk about gun safety in this country. My final example is look at the last midterms. It's 2022. Exit polling tells us that in the top five issues, in the top five things that drove people to the polls... One of them was not drag queens at a bar. One of them was not trans kids accessing healthcare, but one of them was solving gun violence. A majority of people in this country are telling us that gun violence is a real issue, that we have to come together and find solutions. So what are those solutions? Well, first and foremost, um, we really do need federal legislation that addresses a whole host of things. We need federal legislation that finally addresses our Swiss cheese approach to background checks. If my dad has to get a background check to purchase a firearm, the neighbor should have to get a background check too. He should not be able to go to his third cousin, pay him $2,000 in cash, and walk home with an assault rifle. It doesn't make any sense. 98% of Americans agree on that. We should tackle that. We can talk about having national extreme risk protection orders, red flag laws, uh, where a court of law could temporarily remove firearms from someone that we know is an immediate threat to themselves or others, right? We could do that tomorrow, a majority of Americans agree. And yes, a majority of Americans agree that assault weapons and high-capacity magazines have no place in our society, and we should ban them. We've done it before. We can do it again. I understand the dynamics of the Senate and the House. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next week. But those are the things that we have to be consistently beating the drum for. Those are the things we have to consistently be demanding because they're possible, they're popular, and they're worth running 
and winning on. And then beyond that, I could get on a soapbox forever. But beyond that, we have to address our culture of violence in general. We have to address the things that drive people to violence in the first place. We have to address the fact that we live in a society, in a country that places value on people only for what they can produce, not because they're a human being. We have to address the fact that we live in a society, a country that criminalizes poverty, that criminalizes homelessness, that that is steeped in systemic racism, that all of these things in a carceral system that throws people in jail and leaves them there to rot with no care for their mental or physical well-being, that that system drives people to violence. And if we don't fundamentally address our structures, our systems, and actually create a system that values people, that takes care of them, that gives them what they need in order to thrive, we're going to continue to see a relentless cycle of despair, hopelessness, and violence. So there's a lot of work to do, but those are just some of my ideas. Yeah, you're you're preaching to the choir here with me because you know one of the things that I I'm just so desperate for is a real understanding that all of us are have value and all of us are worthy and that you know we can't expect that systems that perpetrate violence are going to create a nonviolent society. Right. We've actually really got to look at the systemic ways in which violence is perpetrated from the moment you're born until the moment you're gone and all the steps in between and and you know I see it in everything from you know lunch debt for kids in elementary schools, which drives me crazy that you'll be, they will starve kids instead of allocating money for student lunches. And they'll do it in favor of supermax prisons, which, you know, fundamentally are, are in addition to everything else, our carceral system is creating more violence because of the way that it functions. Punishment doesn't work. I, again, you and I could both get on our (laughs) soapboxes about this for hours, but it's good to be in conversation with like-minded folks. Absolutely. Um, So, You know, one of the things that I do want to just talk about briefly, because we are facing such dire circumstances right now. And simultaneously, we have this need, um, you know, to to think through and, you know, Anat Shankar Osorio is the episode preceding you on um, on the podcast. She and I spoke about, isn't she amazing? Like, just so great. And we talked about how the messaging strategy of this moment is not just to kind of push back against fascism and hate and violence, but also to create a future that folks can imagine if we elect people on our side of the fence. And then part is about not seeding ground, but instead sharing and messaging and talking to people about what's possible for all of us. And so I don't want to diminish the fact that, um, that, you know, and, and I've been thinking about this ever since I read it. I read something last week about the fact that um, you know, one of the things that drives fascists crazy, <laughs> for lack of a better way of putting it, is joy, is the fact that yes. nonetheless, all of us who are marginalized and targeted find ways to thrive and that joy is spontaneous. It can't be controlled. It doesn't belong to anybody. It cannot be monetized or sold in your own experience, in your own life. And that it, it is it is endemic to our freedom. So um, you're working on so many issues right now that are so difficult and challenging and so important. And I want to ask you what gives you joy? Because 
that to me is also just something that um, that's so critical to how we go forward from here is that we have to find joy in everything that we're doing. So tell me. Yeah, I thank you. I love that you're centering that because you're right. I, joy is an act of protest. And I've, I've always said that I think part of the reason that people are so threatened by LGBTQ people is actually sort of a self-fulfilling pros- uh, prophecy, right? Because if you push an entire group of people out of society and they then find unbridled, unashamed joy on their own, being authentic, free of the sort of chains of expectations that you've put on yourselves, I can see how you might be uncomfortable with the idea that those people are just joyfully being themselves without all of the other stuff that's that's heaped on top of them. So um, I appreciate you centering joy the things that give me, it's not going to surprise you, is the people that I care about. Um, I hosted Friendsgiving for the first time this year. My apartment is very small. This is like probably 50% of it. But uh, <laughs> I hosted Friendsgiving for the first time this year, and it gave me a lot of joy to welcome the people I love into my space. Um, we put up the Christmas tree together. We, you know, sang and danced to Mariah Carey, as one does when it's holiday season. Uh, And so those things, those moments spent with friends and family, those things give me a lot of joy. Um, I love to travel. I'm a sponge for new things. Uh, I am working on a book. It's almost done. I've seen the final edited version. I've looked at the cover. We're like in the final stages of the book. Um, And part of my book writing process was to leave the country. I moved to Mexico for several weeks um, to get started on the book. I was gone for a total of about six weeks. And that experience of just immersing myself in a different world, understanding different people, different culture, different food, that gave me a lot of joy. That really fills my bucket. So I'm someone who's like, I've got my penny jar. And when I've saved up enough, I'm going to pick a place and go and experience something new and and fill my bucket by just reminding myself how big the world really is and building new connections along the way. So I'm a community guy. I'm a relationship guy. I, my friends, my family, different cultures, different people I've met along this journey. Those are all things giving me joy right now. I love it. All right. I have to ask you the three questions that we ask everyone on the podcast. Um, the first, which is kind of similar to what I just asked you, but not exactly, is what keeps you going? Young people. Uh, the ferocity of young people right now, their unrelenting demand for a world that is better than than it was yesterday, that keeps me going. There have been a lot of moments over the last year that have made me question whether or not this line of work is right for me. One of them was we're in the throes of the don't say LGBTQ, don't say gay fight. And I was on my computer sitting in my apartment watching a hearing in uh, the Florida House. I was listening to these lawmakers, mostly old, white, conservative male lawmakers, say horrible things about LGBTQ people. Like some of the oldest, darkest, ugliest tropes about us in the book, insinuating that I pose a threat to children simply because of who I am. Um, and it was it was hard. I, it was one of those days where we'd been at it for a while, and I was sitting at my computer just thinking, I, I don't know. I don't know if this is right for me. I don't know if I can keep going in this fight. I kid you not, that was the very same day that across the state of Florida, thousands of students walked out of school. Hundreds of them flooded into the Capitol cheering, we say gay, and, and they they looked like America to me. They looked like the future that is possible if we truly believe that everyone is of value, if we truly believe that everyone deserves dignity and respect. 
they look like that. Um, and it was that moment that I, I first of all reminded myself, it's not about me. Uh, I do have an obligation to fight for the bigger, the bigger cause. And I'm also reminded that we're doing it not because we may see the fruits of our labor or because equality is coming tomorrow, but because those young people deserve an opportunity to make that future a reality. Um, so young people are, they keep me going every single day. I'm super inspired. We just elected Maxwell Frost to be my next congressman uh, in the He's in, in the U.S. House. I'm a huge fan. Huge fan. I'm a huge fan. We love of him. Maxwell. It's a little weird that my friend Maxwell is now like congressman elect Maxwell Frost. Frost. Uh, yeah, yes, but I do call him congressman elect Frost. I just I don't know if it annoys him, but I do it because you have to. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, Maxwell's another example. He's 25 years old. Uh, inspired by the idea that the world can be better, that this country can be better. And so we got out there and started fighting for it. It's that ferocity, that fighting spirit that that's keeping me going right now. I love that. Um, okay, next question, which we've touched on a lot, but um, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What are your most pressing concerns about the state of America and the world right now? We're in trouble. Um, you know, democracy is in trouble. Um, our way of being in this country is in trouble. And what I, what scares me is that when we're in a fragile state, when democracy or society is in a vulnerable state, we are susceptible to the pulls of authoritarianism, of fascism, of, uh, of culture wars, of, of populism, of the things that, that feed our our nervousness, our fears, our frustrations in the moment, but ultimately tear us apart at the seams. And I worry that, you know, we've been sort of building to this moment. Donald Trump was a harbinger of things to come, the way in which he emboldened and empowered people to say things that they might have been ashamed to say four or five years before. Um, that was that was one component of it. But then I think COVID blew open so much more that People have real fears and concerns. People have real fears about, you know, they're they're trying to work a job and, and they lose it and they don't know how they're going to put food on the table the next day. People had real concerns about what they were going to do if their kids aren't able to go to school. Those are real fears and concerns that are valid and worth addressing. But then you have cynical, sinister, right-wing actors like Ron DeSantis, Greg Abbott, all of these extremists who come in and tug at those real fears, those real concerns, and warp them into a perverted sense of needing to fight back against everyone all the time. Um, that is my greatest concern right now, is that our country is in a very fragile state, that our country is in a vulnerable place, and that people are really susceptible to the toxic messaging from the right wing that would have them you know, taking up arms or fists against their neighbors instead of asking each other how we can build our communities back. Yeah, I sh I share that very much. Um, that brings me to the final question, which I which I hope is uh, is one that that lends toward uh, at least something of an optimistic future. Okay, which is you know we're we are an audience on this podcast full of activists and organizers, even if they're like stay at home moms who are mobilizing for a candidate where they live. Love that. Or um, you know people running for for the mayor's office in a town of 300 people, right? Love and so too. I'm curious, yeah, I'm curious as to your best advice for us on how to work to change that, uh, which is kind of the whole reason why this podcast is here. <laughs> yeah, um, oh my gosh, I have so many things that I would say to people. The first one is, is um, leave space for grace. 
uh, and that means for you as well. Um, part of what makes this country so great is that we're all so different. The country is is large geographically. It is diverse demographically. Um, and perspectives are different because of that. People who live in, you know, the mountains of Montana don't see the world the same way as people who are living in Los Angeles or New York City. But that actually is the thing that gives us our superpower. That unique blend of lived experiences and perspectives is what unlocks our potential as a country, as a society. But it requires us along the way to give each other grace and to give ourselves grace. So that's the first piece of advice I would have is, is be patient and be kind to one another. Be patient and be kind to yourself. You're not going to win the war tomorrow. You're not going to, you know, equality is not coming tomorrow. The, the end to gun violence in America is not coming next week. These things are going to take time. And so you've got to be patient with yourself, knowing that Eventually, we're going to get there. You're going to chip away at it, and we will succeed. We'll make progress. Um, and the second thing is, is I would just say none of this is an individual sport. It's a team activity. I tell people all the time, one of the biggest lessons I learned is that I don't have to save the world in order to prove I belong in it. I don't have to put the weight of the world on my shoulders in order for everyone to know that I'm doing my part. Everything you're doing to make the world a better place is a value. Everything you're doing to make the world a better place is helping us toward that future that is possible. When I think about how Drew changed my life, it wasn't because he ran for office, although I would encourage everyone, please run for office. It wasn't because he, you know, taught a class to me someday or, you know, or or because he played this critical, instructive role in my life or was a huge advocate in the community. Drew changed my life because he existed unapologetically as himself, because we sat across the dinner table from each other in a restaurant one time, and he didn't lower his voice or look over his shoulder to make sure the other booth, you know, couldn't tell that we were talking about boys instead of girls. Drew changed my life because he didn't stiffen his wrists or deepen his voice when we were in groups of people because he was unashamed of who he was. His existence as a whole, authentic, real human being made me the person I am today. So I would encourage people to know you're doing that for other people. Just showing up as your whole authentic self, that's already changing the world. Okay. <laughs> On that note, I have such gratitude. We're looking at each other. The audience can't see this. I'm like full of tears. I, I'm so grateful for you, Brandon, and for oh, everything that you're you. doing out there in the world. Um, and thank you for being with us today, for sharing so much of your story and your wisdom and your work. And um, and I know it's hard. And I just want you to also hear it from me and from everybody who listens in, um, that we see you and we are so grateful. Uh, and I say that from my kid's heart as well. So thank you for that. Thank um, you. That, all right, that means a lot. Thank you. Good. I'm glad. Um, we're all in it together, right? We you know, are. arm in arm. That's um, right. So, uh, so with that, I will just say thank you to Brandwell for being here. Please go check out the Drew Project. Please go check out Equality Florida. And uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes. So after this episode ended, Brandon and I kept talking. And one of the things that we discussed as we were winding down our recording session after the microphones were off was the importance of 
creating safe spaces for LGBTQ kids exactly where we live. And one of the things that Brandon said to me, which um, which actually made me cry off mic, <laughs> was uh, he expressed gratitude for the fact that I am so consciously choosing to support my own LGBTQ plus child and to make our home a welcoming and safe space for LGBTQ plus kids where we live. Not every adult who is LGBTQ plus has had that experience and certainly not every child has that experience growing up. And he mentioned that it was a point of extreme thankfulness that people like me, um, where it seems so obvious to me, right? I want to be really clear about this. It seems completely obvious to me that your kids come in as who they are and you love them for who they are. And there's not really any, uh, any choice in the matter. It's one of the reasons why I find it so difficult that parents can reject their own children simply for being who they are. And to me as well, it's, it's a no brainer to make my house a place where everyone is welcome, where children of all identities are welcome and are safe. That seems to me just the baseline obligation of any member of society. But Brandon's point was that creating that space creates futures and it creates places where children can know that they can be themselves and can be safe. And that leads to leaders like Brandon growing up on the front lines of activism and change-making because they know that they are worthy and deserving of being loved for who they are. So the point that I want to make and leave you with today is that we all have an opportunity to change the future just simply by being present for our kids and for kids around us, that we have an opportunity to build future leaders by telling children that who they are is good enough and that they are worthy and deserving of love. So I'd invite all of you today to consider how you show up where you live for everyone, for everyone, regardless of identity, for everyone who might be persecuted or subject to violence or shunning in their own homes. How are you showing up every day to make sure that our kids know that who they are is good enough, that they are worthy and that they are loved? Because so much of our future depends on our ability to simply convey to our children that they matter. Thank you so much for being here, and I'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. If you want to know more about me, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, head on over to GaiaLeadershipProject.com, where you can check out all our in-person and virtual leadership programs for folks who want to create change at work, at home, and in the world. You can also read my essays on politics, law, and change at newsletterwithecm.substack.com. And last, but definitely not least, you can listen to all our episodes of Living Through It ad-free over on Patreon at patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. Thanks for listening and see you next week.